You're listening to the Versus Node podcast, presented by GamerNode.com. Welcome to the Gamer Node versus Node podcast, where we don't just talk gaming, we think it. My name is Eddie Inzotto, website director at GamerNode.com, and I'm here with Christos Reed, columnist and writer extraordinaire. How you doing, Chris? I'm not too bad. How are you doing? I'm pretty excellent. So, I just wanted to introduce the podcast, as this is our first show. We intend to have guests in the future, but we're starting off with something simple, just to give everybody a feel for our format and how we do things. The plan is to do this on a bi-weekly basis, possibly moving into something more frequent, and taking the traditional sort of, let's look at current events and what we're playing and what's been written out there in the industry format with something a little bit more analytical where we focus on a selected topic that is somewhat relevant to those things that are going on, and just pick apart the topic and sort of give ourselves a little exercise in analysis rather than just recapping. So um, I guess we'll start off with what's been going on in the industry. Um, Chris, what have you been uh, reading lately in terms of news and current events? Absolutely everything. There's been a load of stuff going on in the industry this week, uh, from murders in Nottingham and Massachusetts to, well, the Square Enix acquisition of EDOS to Swine Flu, the video game, which is what I'm going to start off with, which is uh, the first game to emerge based on Swine Flu, which was inevitable given the Newgrounds-esque sense of humour that uh, the gaming internet seems to possess, is Swine Fighter, which is, and I quote, a game which challenges the player to inoculate as many pigs as possible under the pressure of a time limit. Awesome. Obviously being helped by linked to Twitter, so obviously it's going to get around the internet about 30 seconds. But <laughs> this isn't actually the most controversial Flask game there's been in, in the last couple of weeks because uh, there was a game recently called Faith Fighter, which was mm-hmm. made by a bunch of guys and it was essentially just offensive to every religion possible. It's sort of South Park, but without the humour. And uh, so that's been attacked by everyone from the government to religious organisations to the UK Metro. Faith Fighter's interesting, though. Um, they've actually just come out with Faith Fighter 2 because of uh, all the controversy. Faith Fighter is kind of old, actually. I think it came out years ago. But for some reason, it somehow just got uh, a lot of press. Now, initially, it was like a Mortal Kombat-style fighting game where you chose uh, any deity you know, of various different uh, world faiths, and you just fought each other. And they had said that it was to show how using faith as a, a way to justify violence uh, was a common occurrence in the world. But mm-hmm. since all of that, they've had this pressure to either you know take it down or whatever they have taken it down and they replaced it with a different game faith fighter 2 where you basically just click on the images of each of these um deities and 
prevent them from fading away so that you tolerate all of them together in one space. And it even includes things like Ganesha and Buddha and the Prophet Muhammad, whose uh, face is actually censored. Um, and there's even something like the flying spaghetti monster, which I think was pretty funny. Um, so they, they made that change. Yeah. And the new game comes with an intro, which I thought was pretty interesting, which they said, uh, the intro goes, Faith Fighter 2 is the sequel of the infamous game that outraged over 1.3 billions of Muslims from 53 <laughs> countries. The scandal resulted in a ban from all the internets. We regretted the use of irony and violence. And this time, want to offer you a positive, non-violent educational game that teaches the universal values of tolerance and respect. This is a very simple game that can be played by children of all ages, religious leaders, and even journalists. <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant because it was so... that They had such a sense of humour, but at the same time, they've come out with this Flash game that you can literally not actually say anything about. But to me, my first thought was, you've got to you've got to click on all these religious deities to stop them fading away. But at the same time, what they could have done to keep the controversy was simply, I would have assumed they would have had three deities at first and then six deities and then 12 deities. But, oh, that is smart. I like but that. Obviously, the religious leaders would have gone, you know, why, why, is, why is our God, you know, only in level five but not in level one? But they've evidently just sort of pandered to the press, I suppose, which I'm assuming is the result for the uh, <laughs> putting journalists above the outraged level of religious leaders, which baffles me a little bit because I know the Pope doesn't look like an angry man, but <laughs> I'm also assuming he doesn't have a Sony Vio, but I'm assuming that he was slightly more incensed than, you know, the editor-in-chief at GameSpot. Right. Oh, another thing, another controversial thing was um, Konami... And their game Six Days in Fallujah, which was in development by Atomic Games and defended when the controversy arose and then canned because of the controversy after Konami themselves said, and I quote, at the end of the day, it's just a game, which was uh, sort of disappointing in itself. But, um, yeah, sort of interesting, right? Yeah. It is. I mean, I just thought it was disappointing more than anything else that Konami would support something that is, in my opinion, possibly the most ethically balanced video game ever. Because Call of Duty 3, set in, if not Iraq, then, you know, a, a carbon copy of said place. Then you've got uh, 50 Cent Blood on the Sand, which is him, you know, charging around the Middle East with an AK-47. Not because he's fighting terrorists, but because he wants a diamond-encrusted skull. So you've got these games where they don't really research the antagonists, they don't really research the terrorists. They just assume, like Army of Two, you know, Army of Two had about five character models for Middle Eastern terrorists. They're like, right, okay, we need three guys with turbans a guy without a turban, and a suicide bomber. And it had suicide bombers running at you in the game, and you had to blow them up before they got to you and your partner. And I just thought to myself, you know, this is... Well, that's how it really is, right? I suppose, yeah. But, I mean, it, it says, <laughs> though, you know, I'm assuming that the people that, you know, that have, that have been suffered from these attacks probably wish they had some method of stopping these people. But it's it's bizarre because... What Six Days in Fallujah did was they've gone and spoken to 
the other side. They've gone and spoken to right. freedom fighters and they've said, you know, how do you want to be represented in this game? And I think that's really interesting because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I've never seen a developer think, okay, we've got these antagonists that are terrorists. Let's go speak to people that get stereotyped as terrorists and see how they would want to be represented. Though, in my opinion, you know, if any of the terrorists or freedom fighters or anyone that's getting stereotyped into that antagonistic group has a sense of humour, I think we'll be seeing something along the lines of a large mech Gundam wing style <laughs> character as the end boss. But I just, it's really disappointing that they've dropped it because I think it makes them look a lot more cowardly than the developers. Right. I was actually really excited about that. You know, they, I actually have the quote here. It's important for us to say, you know, that there are actually three communities that are very affected by the battle for Fallujah. Certainly the Marines, certainly the Iraqi civilians within Fallujah, and the insurgents as well. We're actually getting contributions from all three of those communities so that we can get the kind of insight we're trying to get. I think they were trying to look at it in a really important way, and for that to be coming to the gaming world, I thought was uh, a great step for the medium as a whole. And to me, it was like a shining light. <laughs> uh, but I guess not yet. Yeah, definitely. Though, I think, I don't know, there have been a lot of controversial issues, but the the only one that I personally felt quite offended by mm-hmm. um, was uh, Bioware talking about um, their new... Uh, I believe it was their new MMO. Uh, or, no, it's uh, Star Wars The Old Republic. Um, the people were discussing the fact that, that users were banned from using uh, the words homosexual, lesbian, and gay on the forums. And the yes. reason for this was apparently... The community manager wrote, as I have stated before, these are terms that do not exist in Star Wars. And I don't know about you, but if I was a community manager and I just said Star Wars has no gay community whatsoever, I would instantly quit because you're essentially opening yourself up to a bit of a media firestorm. And obviously they closed the thread because people use those words. And then they reopened it because they realized, you know, Jesus, we've just, (laughs) we've just essentially made ourselves look like the world's most homophobic company (laughs) since, I don't know, (laughs) possibly the Third Reich. So it's, it wasn't, it wasn't advisable, but I just thought that was really interesting. Not because I'm gay, because I'm not, but just because it was, it was interesting that, all this, all this stereotyping goes on in games. But I never thought I would actually get to the point where you're not allowed. And it reminds me about, it reminds me of the guy that left Lionhead recently because he was being bullied at Lionhead about being mm. gay. And then there was uh, various other issues with um, a girl gamer on Xbox Live who was, who had her profile banned because she mentioned the fact that she was a lesbian in her profile and you would assume that there would be a very lecherous attitude towards that on the internet but instead it was a load of Christian parents who would follow her around into Halo 3 matches and you know curse her out and tell her she was going to hell and all of this really sort of derogatory you know anti-gay right stuff and it's it's disappointing mm. but I mean 
<laughs> you've you've got to remember that you know as as much as they were essentially trying to they were trying to burn down the house to save the village because gay is a word that gets used a lot in the gaming community as a derogatory term which is immature and sad but at the same time it then means you know do we allow the use of this word so homophobic people can use it as an insult or do we ban it but it then means that players who simply say the word they don't have to be gay are then banned for using the word it's sort of it goes both ways gay gamer pointed out that there was actually a gay character in uh star wars in the, in the actual Star Wars gaming universe, which really shot down Bioware's argument, because yeah. there's a female Jedi that will fall in love with you even if you are a female character. Right. And then you've got a half-assed way to, yeah. to defend themselves. Yeah, and it's the same with Mass Effect, where you had the lesbian and gay relationships, and there was so much controversy over that, and just the general romance thing in general, which I thought was a real shame. Mm. But yeah. I'm going to stop bombarding you with industry news now. <laughs> okay. Um, how about, let's see, what else? What have you been playing lately? Anything good? Ooh, yes. Um, I, for those of you who remember, I recently wrote a column on Sandbox Gaming. Eddie mentioned in the comments section that I didn't mention Fallout 3 or Oblivion. And the reason for this is because if you mention Fallout 3, by and large, as a journalist, you will usually find yourself talking about Oblivion within the same paragraph, because it is Oblivion with guns set in the post-nuclear apocalypse of Washington, D.C. So I thought, hmm, yeah, I really do need to get my hands on this game. So I was looking for Oblivion. I've been looking for it for a while. And uh, I was uh, standing around an HMV, and my fiancé held it up along with Burnout Paradise and said, you know, I'm going to get you these two games and I thought fantastic that's brilliant so I sat down I played it and I'm really glad I've stopped because I think I I could have single-handedly wrecked my chances of graduating (laughs) (laughs) because it is possibly one of the most in-depth experiences in video games that I've ever had I think if not the most in-depth experience I don't think I've been so immersed in a game since I played Wind Waker Awesome. Absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, Oblivion is pretty incredible. And actually, um, that will lead us into our topic for today about sandbox gaming. But um, another game I was recently playing, I just wrote the review, um, was The Dark Spire, which, although it's not quite like Oblivion, it's it's an RPG, but it's old school, like wizardry. Yeah. And I was really getting into it for a while there. Um but it's so niche, such a such a f- clear audience that they're that they're aiming for, and uh, nobody else really. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, um, I think that there are a lot of games that have really followed on from that sort of that that template that Oblivion set down, and it's that whole the whole fantasy world where you know the technology doesn't need to be high tech. And it's just the simpler form of uh, game design. Because if you remove stuff like guns, instantly you don't need to worry about uh, projectiles unless you're using arrows. You, you know, it's sword and blade. I mean, what, what did you think of Dark Spire in the end? Was it a game experience you really enjoyed, or was it was it not so great? I did enjoy it. The thing about it is uh, because of its style, uh, it's basically a dungeon crawler. 
you are constantly exploring and discovering what's around you. Um, and I really like that. I, uh, I've wondered in the past about uh, the possibility of games without conflict where you're continuously exploring and discovering because that's something I do in the real world. I go all over the place and just uh, try to have new experiences. And um, there's something very similar to that in this kind of dungeon crawler where the map is totally blacked out and you reveal it as you go and you have to take like small steps go in one direction find out what's there then go back and regroup go in another and find out what's there and come back and regroup and use various tidbits of information that you get from like maybe this deep dark corner of the dungeon up like three floors somewhere else so it was really a very engrossing experience although I imagine that some players could get started playing the game and just not really care to continue because it is a very slow process. So there's my short review of the Dark Spire. <laughs> but it's interesting because I was thinking along the lines of sandbox titles and I was wondering what exactly makes a sandbox because typically we say a sandbox game is a game where there's like an open world where you have a certain area that you can fully explore, do a variety of things, etc. But I was wondering if the term sandbox could really apply in a variety of ways. Like, is it a sandbox in the Dark Spire because, because I'm going wherever I want in the dungeon and using certain abilities and uh, certain bits of information that I find to help me progress in other areas that are not necessities, that are optional. I mean, much like the what I think the original sandbox game is, is um, like Dungeons and & Dragons and other tabletop RPGs. Yeah. And games like the Dark Spire sort of use a lot of elements. You know, they try to recreate that, that Dungeons & Dragons experience. So in those tabletop games... You can really do anything, absolutely anything. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, to think about our predefined understanding of what makes a quote-unquote sandbox game in the modern era and then look at other games and say, well, is that also a sandbox but a different kind of sandbox? So, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking about. Like, how do you how do you define a sandbox? What does it mean to you? Well, what I found really interesting was when I was writing the column on sandbox games uh, about what would be just over a week ago now, I did my sort of usual fact-checking rounds, and I noticed that if you type uh, sandbox and then video games in brackets into Wikipedia, you get redirected to an article titled Nonlinear Gameplay. Mm. And I just think those two words are a fantastic definition, because... There's so many different ways you can define a sandbox game, and the easiest way I found to look at it was essentially that there's, you know, you could have an overall purpose, but there are also games where you have a sandbox mode. So you could have SimCity or The Sims with the objectives turns off, something that has a million and one diversions, but no real, no real crux to the storyline. There may not even be a storyline. It just may be more of an open-ended experience that you can build on. Like rather a toy. than Exactly. 
like a toy, like a like, like a literal sandbox full of you know mm-hmm. cars and spades and stuff. And I think that games like Viva Pinata are a fairly good example of that, where there is an overall objective to upgrade your garden to make it the biggest it can possibly be, to upgrade your watering cans, upgrade your spade to get more animals. But even when you have the max amount of everything, you could just keep playing. And I think that's quite entertaining. But I think, to me, sandbox games say Grand Theft Auto, they say Fallout 3, Oblivion, experiences where there is a really solid sense of storyline. Because mm-hmm. I enjoy sandbox experiences as much as the next person. I like open-ended gaming experiences, but there's only so much you can get out of that. And Assassin's Creed was one of my personal favourites. <laughs> Absolutely slated by the majority of the video game press for being repetitive. but It was. And it was. And the concept of collecting flags as an assassin was possibly the most unintelligent choice of a collectible I've seen in a video game but it was still a brilliant game in you know in terms of sandbox gameplay because you had this huge city and because the game the game engine was so powerful it could render everything at once right. and you could it was what well, was based on parkour running wasn't it you could you could just point them in a direction and like link in the ocarina time you point them in a direction he jumps for you he climbs for you right and you could just run around and you didn't you didn't have to go by the storyline. You could literally just assassinate loads of people. But at the same time, if you didn't assassinate your main target, you weren't going to go anywhere. And there was only yeah. so much you could do. I actually found myself, after completing the storyline, which I really enjoyed, um, going back to the game. Assassin's Creed is one of those games that while I'm playing other games, a lot of times I think, man, I kind of want to play Assassin's Creed right now. And it's because <laughs> I would just... I would just, you know, roll up to the city on my horse and kind of walk in, you know, imagine that I was this assassin, just sort of like make up my own little scenario, walk through the town, go save some villagers, be a hero, and run around, climb on stuff, see how high up I could get, things like that, see what's going on in this corner of the city. And it was just really fun. It was... Like I said, I guess maybe that comes back to the exploration. I think there's uh, something to be said for exploration when talking about sandbox games. But, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is a really fun game, whether or not you, you follow the story or not, with all the distractions and everything, just sort of playing around in the world is the draw Yeah. of the game. Definitely. I mean... For me, the best thing about sandbox games that encourage exploration are, for example, you know, GTA 4. You've got Mm -hmm. one island at the start, and you can go over to the other islands, but if you go over to the other island, you get six-star wanted level, and you just get your, you know, you get your ass kicked. There is no escape six-star wanted level achievement. There's one for four-star, but there isn't one for six, because you can't escape it. It essentially shuts your game down if you explore beforehand it stops your progress but at the same time that's like you know holding a chocolate bar in front of a kid and saying you can have this but i am going to tell you off and of course the kid's going to take it or they're going to wait until they can but they'll anticipate it more and 
being denied access to those islands really made me want to see them because you'd see these brief glimpses and you'd be like, wow, that sort of car isn't on the islands that I have access to. I want that car. But obviously you can't have it. And I just think it's a brilliant way of encouraging sandbox gameplay because I think a lot of players get stuck. It's like, it's like Spore. Spore is a brilliant sandbox game with five different levels representing different stages of evolution. But once you get to, um, and for those of you who haven't played Spore, I do want you, it's a slight spoiler, but by now it's pretty hard to avoid. Uh, skip forward about 30 seconds. It's the space stage, which you're essentially in a UFO. You have the entire galaxy. You can land on planets. You can walk around planets. You can do everything you want. But there's no motivation. There's no storyline. All you do is accumulate more money and badges and a better ship. And while that's a great game for achievement whores, it's not a great game for people that enjoy very sort of narrative-focused storyline experiences. I don't know. But what about you? Do you think that storyline is more important, or do you, do you believe that an open-ended experience is what's more satisfying to you as a person? Well, I'm sort of torn. Um, I really like the crafted experience, you know, where where a developer has a clear vision of what they want you to see, and yeah. they take you through the story in a very specific way to maximize that experience. But then I also like jumping into a game and sort of just playing around. So I, I find myself actually wondering if a developer leaves a game so open with little little guided narrative few elements to keep you on track and focus towards a primary objective, does the game then sort of lose something? I, I don't know. I think each has its own pros and cons. You know, they should almost be looked at completely differently. On this end, you have a game where the point is to just mess around, and over here you have one where it's to take in what has been given to you in terms of, of the narrative. Yeah. I, I can't really say that uh, one is better than the other or not. Having both is really interesting, and um, I, I like that about games like Assassin's Creed and GTA 4 and Oblivion, even though I never went anywhere with the story because it was there was just so much to do. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe having both is best. I agree. I mean, the thing with that whole non-linear gameplay phrase is really irritating because I've been debating for the last sort of few <laughs> weeks whether or not I could consider Mass Effect a sandbox game because on one, on the one hand, it's it's not really like if right. you took if you took the flat-out definition and just went with sandbox gaming instead of the lazy redirection of Wikipedia, it's not because you do there are so many more set pieces and the only planets you can access that aren't related to the main story are very barren there there are objectives on that map but there's not really anything else um bar the generic sort of scan this scan that hack this hack that steal this shoot that uh mm-hmm. shoot that husk save the citizen and it's a bit it's a bit monotonous sometimes but at the same time you do have the ability to explore every solar system maybe not every planet as they originally pitched which was a bit frustrating because 
they pitched it in such a way that they were like, right, you've got this entire entire galaxy, you've got loads of solar systems you can explore, and I'm pretty sure there are more than 30 solar systems in half the Milky Way. <laughs> and yeah. But there was a good amount, and it was really intelligent because it then meant, okay, we've got to design downloadable content. What do we do? We add another solar system. But at the same time, you go into these solar systems with a starry-eyed wonder for the first time, thinking, thank you, Bioware. Thank you for making something that's, you know, an, a really open-ended feeling sci-fi experience that isn't Star Wars. And then you get in and you think, okay, I can scan that planet, but I can't land on it. I can mm. look at this planet and I can read information about it that I'm not, frankly, not that interested in unless, you know, I'm a, a biochemistry major. But I can land on this one planet. But because the objectives were so boring, you ended up going back into the main storyline. And I just think that it would be better to have objectives that are in so engaging that you forget the main storyline than objectives that force you to go back. Because with Oblivion, um, I have started visiting random towns. I don't know why. I mean, I always feel a bit guilty when I use the fast travel system of instantly teleporting there. Mm. But I just wanted to see a random town, so I turned up at a random town. And... Um, I joined the Fighters Guild, and they said, right, your first mission is to go and get rats out of this woman's house. And I thought, god damn it, Bethesda. <laughs> How could you do that? So I went over to this house, and it turns out the rats are the woman's pets, and they're actually being killed by a mountain lion in the basement. And I was just like, whoa. you know. And it turns into this huge conspiracy theory about mountain lions and uh, illegal pets. And there's this huge storyline behind it. Or another town where you'll go in and there'll be a guy stuck in his dreams. And you'll, you'll venture into his dreams. And you, I don't know if you remember this, but you have to go through all these trials of perception and courage and endurance. Yeah. And it was so complex that, to me, that was more complex than a lot of the final puzzles in Zelda games where right. you had to step on certain tiles or you got screwed. And that was very Indiana Jones and I really enjoyed that. But it was, they put so much effort into the side missions that the main storyline actually seems kind of boring sometimes in comparison. I don't know, did did you think it was more engaging than all the side missions or did you were you more attracted to sort of wandering off and... Hacking and slashing. I, uh, I was far more attracted to doing my own thing, discovering the the different guilds and the all the side quests, and doing the the Dark Brotherhood and going to the arena and things like that. But I think you brought up a good point just now. I was saying that it may be one or the other, uh, a crafted experience versus uh, open-ended exploration and gameplay. But it seems that with Bethesda, what they did was they gave you this open-ended sandbox with a variety of paths that you could discover on your own and complete to your own personal level of satisfaction. But within each of those threads of the world of Oblivion, they crafted the experience as if it were its own individual storyline or story arc so that to me is probably the very best of sandbox gaming yeah definitely i mean 
For me, out of the main storyline in Oblivion, I think my favourite point was listening to Patrick Stewart. Mm-hmm. That was hands down the best experience I've had in a video game because it was because you have Zono, uh, Zoe Wanamaker who does a very well-known sitcom here in the uh, United Kingdom, but then you see her do the character in Fable Two, and you're just like, wow, I know that voice. So there's this huge sandbox universe. But you've got this one thing from the real world that you can latch onto, and you tend to stick to that. I mean, with Fable 2, there was a huge sandbox universe, but it was one of the best kinds of sandbox universes because it was so real. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could marry people, you could have children, you could buy houses, you could rent houses, you could... There There was everything in it that there should have been, but at the same time, it just wasn't engaging enough there was a load of stuff you could do but there was no there was you just felt yourself asking why because there are missions which basically say you know you can either kill this woman or man or you can marry them and i thought well (laughs) is 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 someone that's you know very happy in a relationship in real life i don't want to marry someone in a game but for those that do the, the fact that that option is there is quite stunning to me mm-hmm. because I didn't know quite how to deal with it and you, it, it was a lot more advanced because there was a sense of morality with that particular aspect I know I'm focusing on the relationship point of it a lot but I thought it was the most interesting part of Fable 2 because you can marry two people at the same time but if the two women ever see each other they'll work it out and you're in trouble or the two men ever right. see each other and I just thought that was really interesting because any game that can make someone swallow or gulp in fear from something that isn't a ten-foot dragon is, you know, a remarkable achievement, I think. But, I don't know, did you play Fable 2? I did play Fable 2, and the world was pretty interesting the way it was set up and the, the number of options that you had in terms of buying property and marrying people and all that. But in the end, I found that the game itself always left me looking for the good part. I didn't think that the relationship aspect maybe was as deep and compelling as you did, because I would walk into a town and 30 men and women would all want to marry me all at the same time. And <laughs> I found that to just sort of boot me right out of the the realism of it. Yeah. And in terms of just buying houses and such, I mean... Yeah, I could buy a lot of houses, but I can buy a lot of houses in Monopoly, too. Um, <laughs> That's very true. So, for somehow, it just left me wanting a little bit more. Maybe the way that the world was very disjointed. Um, yeah. There were, there were all these different areas, but you had to fast travel to all of them, and there was no real clear visualization in my mind at any time playing the game of even how the place was really laid out, where these places were in relation to each other, isn't really explained. You don't even have a a clear map in the game that defines the layout of the world. And obviously the story was very short, but it also seemed really not very deep and sort of obvious. I don't know if I answered anything that you asked, but those were (laughs) my opinion on Fable 2. It's true. Um, I didn't find it to be 
a a very engaging sandbox in the end. Uh, yeah. is, I guess my final point. Fair enough. Um, but it was a different, you know, it was a different type of game, which brings me to another thing that you said before about the Wikipedia entry. Yeah. You said anything with non-linear gameplay. So that just got me thinking about a game that I will bring up in every single podcast I'm ever in, probably. Braid. Is Braid a sandbox game because it has non-linear gameplay? Because you oh, can, yeah. Because you can go to every world? Now, I mean, I don't, I don't really think so. I don't know, because to me, the... The thing that struck me most about Braid when I first started playing was the fact that you started... Do you remember, the area where you start is just your pitch black silhouette and there's a background mm-hmm. that says Braid. And, and then you run into this house and there's like, you know, it is a level hub. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's so open-ended. It's <laughs> I'm always going to return to the same thing I say about Braid every time which is hands down the biggest WTF moment in gaming for me, has to be when I read the, the all the storybooks start to finish and then just right. thought I didn't understand a single thing that went on there. So I played through again and again and again and again because I wanted to understand. But at the same time, what I thought was brilliant was that you could jump between things, you could rewind time, you could play with the world. And to me... That's that. That to me says sandbox because I've got a tool yeah. that I can affect the entire world with, which I thought was I thought was brilliant. Do you think the time mechanic was a sandbox tool? Or? Hmm. I actually never considered the time mechanic to be a sandbox tool because its effects were instant and short term. I mm. think, but the the open endedness that says that. Maybe this is a sandbox by some definition because I can go to all of these five or six worlds and play around as much as I want. Yeah. But really, there isn't a whole lot to actually do. Um, You can go back through and you can try to redo all the puzzles simply because they're so brilliantly implemented that you don't really remember them all, uh, especially the more (laughs) difficult ones after you've played through once, which I think was cool. But I can't necessarily go exploring, and I can't build anything, and I can't do those sorts of things that you would normally connect with a sandbox experience. Yeah. I think if there was anything that sort of said to me that... Uh, Jonathan Blow appreciated the fact that some people might not want to spend hours in the universe and kind of wanted an objective. It was the fact that he included an achievement for, do you remember the speedrun system? Right. Where you complete the game in a certain amount of time, and it's very much like the GTA 4 achievement I went for about, must be about half a year ago now, where you complete the game within 30 hours of gameplay time. Which essentially means you ignore everything bar the story and you skip every cutscene. So literally the only storyline you're getting is from in-game dialogue. Mm-hmm. And while that provides a really slick game experience that's very reliant on skill, Braid, not so much because I think if you solved all those puzzles yourself rather than with a guide, you'll know how those puzzles go together. 
So mm. it kind of defies the point of a speedrun because you're essentially saying, here are the letters of the alphabet. You know what order they go in. I'm going to drop them on the floor and jumble them all up, and you have 15 minutes to put them back in order. But there's so no you're ch- saying you're saying the work is done in your mind on yeah. that first playthrough, and then the, going back through it is just sort of going through the motions, and there's no real gaming skill involved with completing a speedrun. Yeah, exactly. Because with okay. with a game that's I'm going to choose a game that's completely non-sandbox experience, but it still applies. Halo 3, if you're playing back through in any difficulty, you play at the same level twice. The same thing will very rarely happen twice when you're in a mass firefight because mm. an enemy might run round to the left of the tree or they might go round the back of the tree and, you know, brain you in the back of the head. But at the same time, I think that that's a lot better when you're trying to speed through it because there's a massive element of skill because things are just as predictable this the same time you play Braid for the tenth time as they were the second time because nothing will ever change. Admittedly, you might hit the rewind button a second later and things will go wrong, but I could hit the right trigger to shoot a, a member of the Covenant in Halo 3 the same time every time, but I'm going to miss sometimes and sometimes I'm going to hit them. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um... But yeah, we've covered a colossal amount of sandbox games actually, and it's it, it's called up into my mind this this virtual list of right. I've got to do this, 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 this. And actually, one of the things I was going to do this evening was go and play uh, Burnout Paradise, which is essentially a car-based sandbox, sandbox experience. Yeah, which is very interesting because you know they've got it's a car in a city, so admittedly. There's only so much you can do with it, but now they've introduced bikes at sort of a different approach, and they're trying to they're trying to mix new things in with it. But at the same time, to me, it just felt a bit it feels a bit strained because unless they introduce planes, you're not really gonna get any new experience. And planes in Burnout Paradise is a little unfair because even a jumbo jet still travels at 700 miles an hour. You know, it's, <laughs> you, there's not real any competition. You're not, you're not gonna have three people in uh, Shelby GT copies and then one person in a jump jet Harrier because that doesn't work. But at the right. same time, PGR4 was ruined in the same way with the inclusion of motorbikes, in my opinion, just because it just felt like an unnecessary way to stretch the gameplay out. But do you feel that uh, Burnout Paradise is a true sandbox? Um, I would say no, because... It does have non-linear gameplay, but that's all it has. It's it's literally, you could say, oh, there are objectives to complete, there are gates to smash, so I have to get my license up to the highest possible level, but at the same time, it's still, it's still non-linear gameplay with no purpose whatsoever, but it still has boundaries. The Sims is an open-ended game, but it has no boundaries. I mean, bar, obviously, the width of the entire town, but that's going to vanish when Sims 3 comes out. Hopefully in June, but I don't. I don't think it's a sandbox game as such. I just think it's they've taken all the best elements of Burnout and stuck them in a far more relaxed version of Liberty City and thought, right, go. And to me, I found the the car chases and races in GTA 4 far more exhilarating than zooming around a place that essentially looks like it was yanked out of a Hollywood film. 
You're right. It seems like Burnout Paradise uh, had a world that was tailored for for those sorts of chases and races, whereas GTA 4, you were performing these these chases in a city that was essentially trying to be a living city and did a fairly good job of recreating the atmosphere of New York minus the millions of people all over the place. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, like I was saying earlier, I can't really think of... <laughs> I can't think of many sandbox games we haven't touched on. Obviously, people listening to this have probably already got a list of about 50,000 various gaming experiences that we haven't spoken yeah. about. But I suppose sandbox games are becoming so common now that to cover all your bases would be like to mention every incarnation of every FIFA, Madden, NHL and NFL title mm-hmm. in existence and that's just pointless because <laughs> you'd end up with a 10 hour podcast but no I feel that I feel that as a final thought for me I feel that sandbox gaming is essentially just a game that you can genuinely play and I feel, I feel that sandbox games are titles in which you can stop and just walk the other way if you don't feel like it. Take a break for five minutes. If the story is upsetting you, just quit, jump on a motorbike, and cruise down the highway at night listening to 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins, which is something I did in GTA 4, and I think is still hands down one of the most relaxing experiences in video games I've ever had. Nice. Definitely. Right, well, in that case, uh, it's uh, goodbye from me, and I'll... I'll hand over to you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Eddie Anzato and Christos Reed, the Gamer Node versus Node podcast. And we'll see you next time.